He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. And if I read this right, we are live. Welcome. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm your co-host, or his co-host, or somebody's co-host, Jack Heald. And we are joined today by nutritionist Amy Berger. I actually started this conversation late because I got deep into some of the stuff that she's written. And uh, it'd probably be better if we get into it while we're recording rather than while I'm by myself. So, Phil, set the table for us here, man. Sure thing. Um, So Amy is a uh, nutritional badass, I will say. And, uh, you know, she's, uh, again, one of the early, uh, early people that I probably came across in the uh, low carb keto world. Um, You know, her, uh, her first book, um, which I'll now say the Alzheimer's antidote is uh, certainly uh, a, you know, one of the um, key uh, texts that I think people should be reading. Um, and then she's had two books since then. She's had the stall slayer, which is really just a great practical guide to, you know, doing keto. And we'll get into a lot of that. And her most recent book, end your carb confusion. Um, again, just a, uh, a powerhouse of a book, uh, when it comes to nutritional approaches. And, uh, I was fortunate, uh, you know, to meet Amy, uh, I've now, uh, shared, shared uh, the stage at some conferences with her and uh, really excited to uh, have this conversation and to bring her to our audience. Uh, so with that, Amy, why don't you fill in a little bit of the details about your background and kind of how you got to where you are today, and then we can uh, dig into all of the great information you have around uh, nutrition uh, to share with us. Yeah, thank thank you. Um, I, I don't think anyone's ever called me a badass before, so that's <laughs> that's the best introduction. Um, I think for for anyone who doesn't know who I am, I, I am a low carbon keto oriented nutritionist and writer, and I I got into low carb eating the way a lot of other people do. I used to be heavier. And I was doing what I thought were all the right things. You know, I I exercised a lot. I dutifully ate my whole grain cereal with my skim milk. And I put light margarine on my whole wheat bread and all that. And I could not lose weight no matter what I did. And uh, I came into this from the Atkins diet. I, I actually read Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution. And this was over 20 years ago when I was in college. And um I I was not ready to make it my permanent way of life at that time. So anyone who's listening, like if if you have started and stopped and started and stopped, welcome to the club. I I don't know anyone who learns about low carb or keto and just does it and that's it forever. They never stumble. They never go back. Um, But I mean, I've, I've been at this now a very long time and I changed careers. Um, I, I was fortunate in that I was not a nutritionist or dietitian who was conventionally trained. And then I had to kind of deprogram and relearn everything new. I actually went to graduate school for nutrition after I was already eating a low carb diet. So I was able to learn all of the you know, biochemistry and physiology in the context of already having experienced all the different things that low carb diets do. And um, long story short, now I, I am in private practice. I do see clients, but um, I also do a lot of writing. And um, I've, I've, I always say at this point, knowing what I know about low carb and keto diet, and, and you, you probably feel the same way, weight loss is one of the least impressive things that this can do. And, and if you're living with morbid obesity, I mean, yes, weight loss can change your life. I'm, I'm not trying to downplay that. But you could also literally be free of type 2 diabetes, be free of PCOS, get rid of heartburn, get rid of migraines, fatty liver. So uh, weight loss happens to be like a little fringe perk benefit that happens on the side of all that other great stuff happening. So uh, you somewhere on your one of your websites, I saw the phrase keto without the crazy. 
first of all, well done. Good title. <laughs> good marketing. Secondly, expand on that. What do you mean, keto without the crazy? Yeah, I the way that actually happened is I, I have a YouTube channel and it just came out of my mouth one day and I thought, oh, oh my God, that's good. I'm going to have to keep that. And that that has become my motto now and my trademark. But I, so like I said, I learned about this a long, long time ago. When I was new to, to low carb, Twitter did not exist. Facebook, Reddit, YouTube, Instagram, Zoom, none of this even existed. And it was so much easier to start then because all there was, was the Atkins book. There was the book Protein Power. And there was like one or two old school message boards Protein online. Power. I and, remember that. Sorry? Protein Power. I, re I remember that book. That's I a great book. I may have even had that book. Yeah. Mike and Mary Dan Eads. And um, so there was less information, but there was less misinformation. There was less conflicting and confusing information. And if if I were new to keto now, I don't even know how I would possibly begin. I don't know where I would choose to get information. And so my the keto without the crazy is like, here's how to do it here, how and why. And here's how to do it without going bankrupt, spending a gazillion dollars on all kinds of gadgets and food. And, you know, yes, you can do it without apps and spreadsheets and weighing every molecule of food you eat. And for the people that like that, great, do it. But for the people that want it without the crazy, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> okay. So the crazy is a combination of the flood of information and the reality that there's a lot of it is misinformation. Is that, have I got that about right? Yeah. Uh, some of it's misinformation, but some of it's not necessarily misinformation. It's just not appropriate for certain situations, you know, and, and, and I'm sure like, like Dr. Ovedia, you, you probably see this all the time. Certain things that are appropriate for one scenario are not for another. Like, like you can use a ketogenic diet for a lot of different things. The kind of diet that a, a child needs to, to prevent epileptic seizures is not necessarily the same kind of keto diet that works for weight loss in a postmenopausal woman. They look different. So it's like, it's not oh. that anyone is overtly wrong. It just may not be appropriate depending on what somebody's trying to do. Yeah, I, I'd love to hear details, like examples, like you gave two very different scenarios, a child, uh, an epileptic child and a postmenopausal woman. Come on, what's well, so, details here for 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 kids? So the ketogenic diet was created for epilepsy. It's it's a it's a diet that works to prevent seizures in at least some people. It, it doesn't work 100 percent, but um. And everybody's different, even within the epilepsy world. Some kids need to be um, not only very, very low carb, but they actually have to watch their protein intake and they have to they have to be more mindful of the ratio between their protein and fat and their carbs. Whereas somebody who's trying to lose weight, especially if like they are in that sort of menopausal, postmenopausal women where that is the most difficult category for people to lose weight. And some of those women, we we cannot have the ultra, ultra high fat. So when they talk about keto being a very high fat diet, that steers us wrong. What it really is, is very, very low carb. Most of us could benefit from more protein and kind of eating, eating fat and enjoying fat, but not going crazy, not deliberately loading all our food up with, you know, melted butter and cheese and oil. So both, about... both diets are low in carbs, but the fat is going to be different. We had a steak and butter gal on several months ago, oh, and she mm -hmm. talked about when she when she flipped over from, uh, I think she was a hardcore vegan, as, vegan wasn't she, yep. Phil? Yes, she so. was. She decided that that was killing her or something, and she, and so she started snacking on frozen sticks of butter. Um, but granted, this is a woman in her twenties, so a little different. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, what I love about your approach, Amy, is, is that, um, you know, practical, uh, you know, 
the the way you just boil down, you know, th there is all the science and you can get, you know, way deep in the weeds and you can be reading all these studies and, you know, what the mechanisms of action are and all of this. But ultimately, you know, for most people, they just want, you know, what do I eat, you know, and, and keep it simple. And the simpler you can keep it, the more successful uh, I find that, uh, you know, it tends to be. And the more that it's able to resonate and most importantly, the more that people are able to stick with it, because I think one of the biggest issues I see out there, you know, today in the nutritional world is that, you know, people realize that, well, when they come to the realization that what they eat is a determinant of their health, that's sort of step number one, and then they start getting into it and they're bombarded with all these different, uh, you know, camps of nutrition and you you know you have the vegans and the carnivores and you have the you know the hardcore keto people uh you know versus more of the just the uh you know eat low carb prioritize protein you know type uh thing and uh you have you know you have a good way of kind of breaking that down and helping people to understand that it, this doesn't need to be complicated yeah i I I appreciate that. I mean, that's definitely what I try to do because it's like you said, it, it doesn't matter how effective something is if no one can actually do it, if no one can actually keep doing it for 10, 20, 50 years. Yeah. And um, I think it's like you said, you know, on social media, there's all these people that love to debate the minutia of this, this one metabolic pathway and this one enzyme. But how much does that actually matter to the person that just wants to lose 50 pounds, to the person that just wants to get off their insulin for type 2 diabetes? They don't need to know that. And, and they're I, I see so many people who are so overwhelmed by thinking that they have to address so many different things at once that they give up because it's like, I can forget it. This is impossible. Whereas for most people, just cutting the carbs is going to take them very far. And like, they might have to add in some other stuff over time, but the, just the, the reduction in carbs is so powerful that they may not have to worry. You know, everybody's now you have to go in the infrared sauna and you have to get, you know, sunlight in your eyes first thing in the morning and you have to fast and you have to do all these things. And no, you don't. And, and if you love that, do it. But don't, you know, people have been using this for hundreds of years. Carbohydrate restriction is not new. This is centuries old. We didn't need all this other stuff. Like all we needed to do was cut the carbs. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I when I was researching you, I, I like to make notes as questions come up. And one of the questions I was going to ask was, um, what's the fastest, simplest nutrition hack most people should adopt? But I think you just answered it. Cut the carbs. Yeah, yeah. Would you, you know, would you expand on that? What, what, what does? Let, let's get into more detail. What does cutting the carbs look like? Yeah, I that's a great question because I was actually going to say about Phil, you know, one of the things that I really liked about I I read your book. One of the things that I really loved about about your book was um you're not a keto zealot. You were very clear. Some people do well with paleo, which is not a, a super low carb diet, you know, necessarily. Some people can eat just what I don't like these terms, but what we would call real food or whole food, not everybody needs an ultra, ultra strict keto diet. So when I say cut the carbs, it, it, de it depends because I think the sicker you are, the more severe your health situation is the stricter an approach you need to get out of that and to start getting healthy again. Um, so if you have, you know, out of control type two diabetes, if you want to lose a hundred pounds or 50 pounds, if you have metabolic syndrome, I think that the fastest and most effective way is to do a very low carb or keto diet. So that cutting carbs in that sense means not just the obvious sources of sugar, like not just the pastries and the sweets and the ice cream and the, you know, the potato chips and stuff, but even some of the things we would consider a healthier, wholesome food like beans, potatoes, sweet potatoes, fruit. You know, there are some people who 
are so sensitive to the effects of carbohydrate that they have to cut all of that. Uh, but some people aren't. Some some people can have, you know, I, I hate to give numbers, but, you know, 50, 100 grams of carbs a day and they're fine. And But some people, in order to really make a dent in those metabolic problems, I think you need to be very low, but maybe not forever. Some people, you know, they go on a very low carb keto diet, they lose the weight, all the health problems go away, and they can gradually reintroduce small amounts of sugar and starch and they're fine, but they they probably can't go back to eating huge sure. amounts of that. So it occurs to me that there's probably two categories of people who would benefit from this. Uh, I'm, should, I'm sorry, I should should clarify, of unwell people. There's the people who have serious problems and know it. And then there's the people who have serious problems and aren't aware of it. And I'm thinking of myself 17 years ago. I, I had um, what eventually led me into nutrition as a, as a way to be, be healthy was severe heartburn. And it was certainly a royal pain in the neck. But if you'd if you'd have said to me, "Oh, Jack, you're deeply unhealthy," I would have said, "Nah, I just you know, I just I need more tums than most people." So that's just a way of setting up the question: What are some fairly common symptoms that people walk around all day long thinking is is normal or mildly irritating? That is actually, hey, you've got a problem, and a low carb approach will help. I could not love that question more. Oh my goodness. Because no, I really do think there's millions of people, like you said, who know they're sick. They have diabetes, they have pre-diabetes, they have PCOS or something. And then there's this whole other portion of the population that most of their blood work, not all of it, most of it looks okay. You know, they they don't have any major problems, but they have all these like everyday nagging little things that they don't realize are actually a big red flag. Right. It's just so normal. And they've had them for so long that they don't even think about them anymore. Um, so one of those would be, uh, like you said, heartburn. Believe it or not, skin tags. That's a big one that surprised. And not always really? some people that have multiple skin tags. That's a sign of too much insulin because it's insulin is a growth signal and it's literally you're growing too much skin. Um, wow. Men, men with BPH, enlarged prostate gland could possibly come from, from chronically high insulin, migraines, hy hypoglycemia, which um, we, we were just at the Symposium for Metabolic Health in San Diego and Dr. Brian Lenskis gave a great talk on the use of, of CGMs, the continuous glucose monitors. And he he and his patients had discovered that that he had a patient who was having what she thought were panic attacks. Turns out they're not actually panic attacks. It was hypoglycemia manifesting as that. So I think that's a big one. I think irritability, road rage is, I think that's also unrecognized hypoglycemia. Um, so many others, I can't. Well, I, I think you've yeah, given us a good list one, here. You know, yeah, definitely. Brain fog, any the of these brain, things can benefit yeah. from low carb. The brain fog, the being tired, the, you know, the joints that hurt, you know, that uh, everyone just attributes to old age. And, uh, you know, most of these things are, are related to what we're eating. Yeah. All right. So um, what... Um, I was going to say, you know, the people that you work with, you know, what are some of the common, um, I, I always hate to say, you know, things they're doing wrong, uh, but, you know, what are some of the common missteps that you find that people make, you know, when they start to sort of dip their toe into this water and they say, okay, I realize I'm unhealthy, you know, it's because of what I'm eating, I'm going to do this low carb keto thing. And, you know, what are some of the and then, you know, it doesn't work. And hopefully, you know, they're kind of persistent enough that they find someone, they find you, they find someone to work with on this. What are those common sort of problems that you see people have uh, that can be corrected to make it, you know, work better for them? 
Yeah, the two the two biggest. So I my you mentioned my book, The Stall Slayer. I basically wrote a whole book about things that get in the way of fat loss on low carb. The two biggest are too many carbs, <laughs> you know, too much carbohydrate. And the second is too much fat. And with too many carbs, and I, I was very, very lucky to have, um, well, I still work with him with um, Dr. Eric Westman, who's been in this, it's about as long as anybody, you know, he he did some of the earliest research in, in low carbon keto diets. And his method has always been total carbohydrate, not net carb. So in other words, you don't subtract the fiber or the sugar alcohols. So that doesn't leave room for all these newfangled, the keto bars and the keto cereal and the keto ice cream that gets in the way for a lot of people, those, those excess carbs, you know, it's not like they're eating rice and noodles, but they're eating all these keto products that they don't realize they're actually having way more carbs than they realize. And then the, the other big one is the fat. Like I, I mentioned earlier, it really kind of irks me when everybody calls keto a high fat diet. It's it's not. What it really is is very low carb. And or depending on the, the situation, right? But a, a lot of people the excess fat when when they think they have to hit a fat macro or that their diet is supposed to be 80% fat or something, so they're adding extra fat even when they don't they're not hungry for it, they don't need it. They're like melting oil and butter on everything because they think they're supposed to. And that, that very often gets in the way, especially of, of fat loss. Um, what's the, what's the, are there signs and symptoms that you're getting insufficient fat? Like the, the other, the other side of the, of the problem that you just described, not that you're getting too much, but that you're not getting enough. Uh, are you talking about on a low carb diet specifically? Right. Or if just you're on a low general? carb diet, but what, are there any signs that you're 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 really being way too strict with your fat? Uh, you'd probably be hungrier. I mean, fat does help satisfy us and keep us going between meals. Um, I think this this would be true of any diet, but if you go long enough without enough fat, you'll start to have like dry skin and. Um, you know, your hair might start to get kind of dry and not look so shiny and nice, but I, I, most of it is probably going to be the hunger. You're just going to be hungry because you, you know, pro protein will fill you up, but you can't, you can't live on protein alone. Uh, I'm trying to think though, Phil, do you know of anything else? Like specifically, I, nothing's coming to me at the moment, but um, yeah, well, the, I was just going to say lack of energy and the tiredness, you know, yeah. the other thing that I oftentimes see with people. And, and this is something that I do encounter because, you know, um, come, you know, being in the heart disease world, of course, everyone has had it, you know, just hammered into their brains that, you know, low fat is the way to prevent heart disease. And despite, you know, the fact that we know that that is just just wrong. Um, we have all the data we need at this point, but people have a hard time getting past that. And and so oftentimes, you know, uh, when I'm working with them, I'm saying, you know, it's the carbs and the sugar and you got to cut that. And then they, but they still kind of stay low fat. Uh, and now they're kind of low carb, low fat, you know, and, and that's probably the biggest thing they, you know, I see is that then they're just like, I'm tired all the time. And, uh, you know, I don't have the energy and, and they don't see the benefits, you know, what, you know, yeah. basically you're putting your body into starvation at that point, uh, oftentimes. And, and so your body, you know, fights it and you don't lose the weight, uh, and you don't get, you know, the, the mental health benefits and all the other benefits that we see from, you know, doing a low carb diet. That's, that's better formulated. Yeah, no, I, I agree. That's I totally forget. That's like I knew there's big ones that I'm forgetting. It read the energy level, the fatigue, and yeah, yeah, you got to get your energy from somewhere ultimately. So I think that's important. So talk yeah. a little bit. You know, uh, one of the reasons I said you're a nutritional badass is because you know you intention you learned a lot of this stuff. You you know started doing it, and then you decided to go back and and get your you know your degree like you said, and I think you kind of knew going into it that you were going to be uh, fighting the battle, you know, you're going to be having to answer 
the questions on the test the way that you might not, you know, the way that you know is not exactly true. Uh, but tell us what that was like going through your nutritional education, having already, you know, learned so much and knew so much about, you know, keto and low carb. I I was actually pretty fortunate. I chose the specific program I chose because I knew they wouldn't be conventional. They wouldn't teach me like the food pyramid and that kind of thing. Um, and it's a fully accredited program. It was a real university, but I just I just knew that it, that program would be not quite as conventional. And it biochemistry is biochemistry, right? Anatomy is anatomy. Those don't change. So to, I loved those classes because I, I knew, I knew a little bit about how low carb worked, but once I really started learning the deep science, I was able to say, Oh, that's why this, that's why insulin does what it does. Oh, that's why this amino acid does what it does. That's why low carb does what it does. Like at the molecular level, learning about the Krebs cycle or fatty acid oxygen. I mean, that was amazing. I, I was very lucky. Like we didn't get taught that, you know, you have to eat this many servings of grain or so I, I'm because I'm not a dietitian, I'm not an RD, my training, I mean, they, of course, learn all the science as well. But I think they learn a little more of that conventional nutrition teaching. Most of my professors now, we certainly didn't learn keto. But most of my professors knew like, we're probably all eating a bit too much carbohydrate. And um, there was one of the biochemistry professors was, um, he knew, I, I guess he was not opposed to saturated fat because he's like, I don't, I, the, the chemistry of this, I don't understand how this would be harmful. <laughs> so, um, I, I feel really fortunate. I, I was able, like, I didn't, I didn't have to unlearn things that I was taught. I, I have a lot of RD friends and other nutritionist friends who did go to more conventional programs and they learned about this on their own and they sort of had to like deprogram their brain and learn all this new mm. stuff. But it's even going, even, even going through the same science classes, like my fellow students could come away from it with very different interpretations, right? Okay. If this is how this pathway works then what should we eat? we could think very differently about it, but I do, I feel fortunate that I, I didn't have to unlearn a lot. You're, you're rare. We have <laughs> guest after guest after guest trained as uh, uh, professional healthcare providers who tell us stories about all this stuff they had to, that was just wrong. It was just completely wrong. So, um, so I'm, let's, let's talk about it. it was Bridgeport. That was the name of the university. Yes. Uh-huh. All right. So for those of you listening and wondering where the heck did Amy get a decent nutrition education, Bridgeport, look it up. University of Bridgeport. University of Bridgeport. Hey, I want to ask about Alzheimer's. Um, it wasn't very long ago that it was revealed that the, the, the root cause of Alzheimer's, as had been reported, what was it, 15, 18 years ago, that the, the researcher basically just made up his data. And we've spent literally billions and billions and billions of dollars chasing a, a joke. Uh, uh, it was worse than a joke. People died and, and money was spent on things that were just, that was never going to happen. Um, Talk about Alzheimer's, what you have learned, its relation to nutrition. Um, I read that you that you had published three books, but I didn't realize the Alzheimer's one was the first. So I'd like to hear, first of all, why that was the first one, and then kind of give us uh, headlines. Yeah, um, that book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, was, uh, it is my first book. And the reason it was the first is, that was actually my graduate thesis. Um, it, it was a much, much smaller, you know, I did a literature review on Alzheimer's disease. And um, <clears throat> after I graduated, I felt like it was really potentially life-changing information. I'm like, 
this is going to sit on my professor's computer. No one's ever going to know anything about this. So I expanded it into, it, it was a PDF ebook that I sold myself and a publisher found it and offered me a book deal. I, I will never be that lucky ever again. <laughs> so then I expanded it that much more into the book it is now. Um, and, and, for anyone who happens to be brand new to this concept, like why why on earth would a nutritionist, let alone a low carb nutritionist, have anything to say about Alzheimer's? They routinely now call Alzheimer's disease type three diabetes or diabetes of the brain. And where this comes from is the main problem in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's is that neurons, for, for whatever reason, we don't know why, they have lost the ability to take up and metabolize glucose. So they're not getting fuel. It's you think of it as a, a, a fuel shortage or like an energy crisis in the brain. So of course, these cells are kind of starving. Of course, you're gonna have memory loss. Of course, you're gonna have you know personality changes and all the things we see. So the, uh, the most promising, most encouraging thing that we know about Alzheimer's right now is that even though the brain is not taking up and using glucose properly, it still takes up and uses ketones. So if we can provide maybe this, this other type of fuel to these otherwise starving cells, maybe we can improve the cognitive function. And the research says that's true. Maybe not a hundred percent in everybody, but it's um, it is the most promising thing going on right now. I think in Alzheimer's. I want to make sure I understand what is currently diagnosed as Alzheimer's is a in the in the brain cells essentially the same thing that's going on in our bodies with insulin resistance. Inability to make use of of need ton of insulin in order to get enough glucose into the cells, uh, which I, I this is the idiot layman trying to explain diabetes. So the brain is that's the same kind of situation in the brain, but because our cells can also use ketones for energy rather than glycogen, a high uh, if you if you flip your system over into ketosis, you're now providing your brain the alternate fuel that probably uses a different pathway than glycogen. I don't know. Am I, am I roughly remotely in the same? No, that's, that's basically it. But the insulin, Insulin and glucose have kind of a different relationship in the brain. You actually don't need insulin to get glucose into the brain, but insulin does other things in the brain. And if there's not enough, in, so the Alzheimer's brain actually has, it looks like, or so far, it looks like there's less insulin in the brain. So whatever insulin is doing is, is not happening. And the glucose, I mean, that's related though, that the glucose is not being taken up properly, but I can't, that's not because of, um, insulin in the brain because glucose would get in the brain anyway. But I I can say that, um, chronically, so type two diabetes and chronically high insulin, even if you don't have diabetes and this, I cannot emphasize this enough, even if you don't have diabetes. So if your blood sugar is normal, if you have chronically high insulin, that is a huge risk factor for Alzheimer's huge yeah wow and, you know it, it also plays into i mean we had uh christopher palmer on not too long ago you know and of course all of the uh work that he's doing and and so many others are doing out there discovering you know the effects of uh you know high sugar high insulin uh on the brain in many different scenarios you know alzheimer's certainly one of them but you know when we start to look at some of these mental health um, issues, and we see that that same picture uh, emerges. Um, and it's clear at this point that, uh, you know, high sugar is not good for the brain. I think we can uh, certainly say that. Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's heard of metabolic syndrome, which basically comes from high insulin. The connections now between metabolic syndrome or chronically high insulin and 
and Alzheimer's and, and the precursor, mild cognitive impairment, those associations are so strong. They now, they have the phrase metabolic cognitive syndrome. So they're not, they're not unrelated. And, um, you know, it's, with with you know you know with cardiovascular disease and like and diabetes and obesity we don't even question that those are driven by diet and lifestyle people might have different opinions as to which diet is causing it or which diet's the best solution but nobody pretends like diet and lifestyle aren't the major factors there but when it comes to the brain whether it's mental health like Dr. Palmer and, and Dr. Georgia E talk about or whether it's it's cognitive function we like dismiss even the possibility that these could also be diet and lifestyle things. And I think, of course, with mental health, there's so many other things that go into a trauma, you know, so many other lifestyle, you know, circumstances can affect mental health, of course, but let's not ignore the possibility of how much of it is driven by diet. Just, just like all the other things that go wrong in the body, you know, things are going to go wrong in the brain too. You know, it sounds like the message there really is. I, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, when somebody's tr- is knows they're unhealthy and is trying to get healthy with their body. Oftentimes, they get stymied emotionally or psychologically or mentally. You know, whatever. There's stuff going on upstairs that just they have trouble pushing through. It sounds like the message is, hey. Eating this way will also help you just have better cognition, better, you'll think better. You'll you'll emotionally be a little more stable. You am I overstating that? No, I don't think you are. I think I think what we eat has a huge influence on our mood, on our behavior, but um I I don't want to dismiss the other factors that contribute. It's not all diet, but I, 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 I think you're absolutely right. Diet plays a huge role. All right. Well, if you don't mind, I want to turn the corner again. Hypothyroidism, thyroid and depression. Um, I'm not rare in that I have had a number of people in my life who have dealt with some form of thyroid dysfunction. Um, and it just appears from the outside to be hell. Um, what I haven't heard is a connection between thyroid and depression. I just love to I'd, enlighten us. Tell us what you've learned about thyroid problems and depression. And, yeah, and I, 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 I'm not a medical doctor, so this is, it's not just my opinion, it's some my opinion. It is my own personal experience, and it's my reading of the published literature. My next book, the book I'm writing right now, is about thyroid, and I think the chapter on depression is probably the second longest chapter in the book, second only to the chapter on weight. <laughs> um, I see so many clients who are on antidepressants and on statin drugs and on all kinds of other medicines when what I think they really need is thyroid medicine. So when your thyroid hormones are not, if if they're low and they're not where they need to be, your whole body slows down. This is what you have constipation. Even the, the muscle contractions in your colon slow down. You lose your hair your metabolic rates, everything slows down. This is why you gain weight or you have a really hard time losing weight. And the depression, the depression, and, and for some people, it may not, they may not think of it as depression. In a lot of people, it manifests as apathy, kind of a flat line. They're not especially low, but they're not, they just kind of make do every day. It, it's like you said, it can be hell. It can be absolutely debilitating. It can rob you of relationships. It can rob you of um self-esteem of trying to go for promotions at work because you just feel so awful all the time. And um, it's, uh, if, if I seem a little passionate about it and a little like my heart is breaking right now, it's because I am and it is. This, and, and the worst part 
is that so many people and and it's women are affected far more than men. Men can have thyroid problems, but it's about a nine to one ratio that women are affected way more. And they can go for years, sometimes decades without being properly diagnosed. And, And some of that is because the reference ranges that are used are not appropriate, but it's, um, you, you can just lose years and years of, of life to feeling miserable because of, uh, undiagnosis. Is it, even, is it, a, go ahead, Phil. No, I was just going to jump in and say, you know, even once, uh, they are diagnosed, um, with a thyroid problem, um, it's oftentimes, uh, not, you know, I guess the, the the root causes of that thyroid problem aren't, you know, investigated. Um, and so oftentimes it ends up getting treated uh, in an ineffective manner because we're not really addressing what led to the thyroid problems in the first place. That That is definitely true. And it's also true, you know, I think it's not always easy to identify the root cause. So in the meantime, if you have to take thyroid medicine, I think let's take advantage of medical technology where we can. I mean, not not every drug is bad for us. Unfortunately, the most commonly prescribed thyroid medicine, the the, the T4 only, the level thyroxine, does not work for a lot of people. They can take it and they still feel awful. They still have all their same signs and symptoms because that T4 is not being converted into the T3, which is the one that actually has the biological effect. And some people do really, really well on the level of thyroxine, but a lot of people don't. And um, I I, I see this all the time. I just see it all the time. The the daughter of a close friend, struggled with serious thyroid issues uh first several sets of of blood tests and whatnot um her 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 numbers came back within range um and she just and nothing ever changed for her she finally got a hold of a physician who seemed to have some understanding of it and he he ran much more detailed tests and was able to point out okay this is this is normal this is way the heck out of what normal is but we don't even know what normal might be for you and we can objectively say that these numbers are just completely wrong um, i don't want to i don't want to get into a, a doctoral dissertation here but can you give us kind of some headlines about what people should be getting tested for if thyroid dysfunction is is suspected yeah again this this that my my book well i want to say goes into it will go into great detail once it's out um the problem is that when you ask for a thyroid test doctors usually and, and when i say doctors <clears throat> that also includes nurse practitioners pas whoever may be ordering the test because my my i have a co-author on the book and she's a nurse practitioner she would kill me if i like left out the importance of these other medical professionals, um, they will only order one or two tests and they they test the TSH. Sometimes they test the T4. And like you were saying with this, this person, you know, it is not uncommon for those things that they test to be normal, but there's four or five other hormones that should, in, in my opinion, should be included in a, com- they call it a comprehensive thyroid panel. And where if those one or two are normal, if you dig deeper, you will see that the other, there may be one or two others, specifically the free T3 that's in the toilet. And, and the other issue, you brought up the great issue that even if you fall within the normal range, that might not be normal does not mean optimal. So if you are at the very bottom of the range, you might feel like a new person if you were closer to the midpoint or higher, but still within the normal range. So just because you're normal doesn't mean you're going to feel well. Um, I really, really wish that more doctors would go by the symptoms versus yeah. the numbers. And this, like we see this even within, within the other metabolic things you would measure for something like diabetes or metabolic syndrome. Most labs will tell you that a fasting insulin of what, 20 or 25 is normal, right? That's crazy. I think, I think those of us in the low carb world think that's kind of nuts. We don't, we don't like to see it that high. So um, it just, 
the the art of medicine, I think the art of doctoring needs to be factored in. You can't just look and and you see that they fall within the range. Great. Who cares where they fall within any particular range when the they're sitting right in front of you and they're telling you, yeah. I'm depressed, I'm constipated, my hair is falling out, I'm cold, I haven't had sex in nine months because I have no sex drive, and I all of these things. How can you ignore that and say, well, your numbers are normal. See you next time. Well, you're talking to the to the healthcare practitioner, and I'm talking from the standpoint of the person who's going to be sitting in the chair. What do you say to those people to say to their healthcare provider? Hey, I need you to check for. Is it what you called it a, a comprehensive thyroid panel? You That's you the, have to ask, yeah, you have to ask for the comprehensive thyroid panel. And then even if your doctor or nurse practitioner is willing to order it, you have to confirm with the lab when you get the blood drawn, because I've had clients who say, oh, my doctor said they ordered the full panel, but then right. when they get the results back, there's only that standard one or two things. Um, but that, I don't know if I should get into detail. I, there, there's a couple, so the a comprehensive panel. Would uh, what, include- here, here's what I'm after. People are listening to this and they're starting to recognize themselves. Give us enough information to at least send them in the right direction to get the details they need. Well, I have a video that we can maybe link to, or if if you go, if you go to YouTube and you search Amy Berg or thyroid, a few videos should come up. But um, I think, and I don't know if we could maybe link to it if you, if you do show notes, but um, we'll, we'll put some links then, but. Ask for ask your doctor for a comprehensive thyroid panel. If your doctor does not want to do it, some of them won't. If you live in any state in the U.S. except New York, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, except for those three, you can do this testing on your own without a doctor. You can go to directlabs.com or ownyourlabs.com or I think it's order a test. There's a lot of different testing websites where you can order your own labs without a doctor, and then. The issue then would be you still need someone to help you interpret them and and to prescribe you the medication if if you need some. So that may still be a battle, but the first step is to do the testing. And and yeah, if if I am talking to anyone out there who has lots of symptoms of hypothyroidism, but you've been told for years you're normal, there is a good chance you are not normal. You need this full testing panel. You cannot just go by the normal tests. And if you are taking the T4 med, the most common brand name in the U.S. is Synthroid, but it's, right. it's called it's level thyroxine. The most common brand is Synthroid. If you've been taking Synthroid forever and you still feel like garbage, there is help for you. You need the more advanced testing because your T3 is probably in the basement. Now, this is the point ordinarily where I would love to get into the chemistry of free T3 and free T4 and the what all of that kind of stuff, but where that's that's for another time. Um, we have discovered, well, we being me, uh, mainly through Doctor Doctor Ovadia, uh, that we've been lied to or misled. Let's say misled. We've been misled about the role of cholesterol and heart disease, the role of serotonin and depression, the root cause of Alzheimer's about whether or not diabetes is reversible um, for decades. And we've made choices based on that misinformation. Is there, is there another giant glaring realm of misinformation as it relates to health and nutrition that you'd like to address? Uh, those, those are the biggest ones. I mean, the, the cholesterol thing, the saturated fat thing, uh, if I, I will lump red meat in with the saturated fat, but if, if I had to choose another one, it's protein because I think women especially have been sort of brainwashed over the years that our protein portions should be about the size of the palm of our hand or a deck of cards. Women's magazines have been telling this for 40 years, and I there is not one shred of scientific evidence to back that up. There is nothing about the human digestive system that says we should eat that much in a meal. And I think 
it's done women a huge disservice because they're afraid to eat a substantial piece of protein. And so they're still hungry, but they're afraid of fat. So they'll have a granola bar or they'll have some cereal or they'll have a rice cake. And they wonder why they wonder why they're hitting the ice cream at midnight because they're starving and they're still hungry. Or we, we think it's unladylike to eat a big piece of steak. I'm not, I'm, I don't think it's unfeminine. Maybe I'm not a feminine woman. I don't know, but <laughs> it's this, I think the protein and you, you could say the same is true of men, but I just don't think men, men have not been scared into eating very small amounts of protein the way women have. Um, so, th- and I there's think, a, so there's a social pressure on women that is yes. not, not on men. Yes. You know, that's, that's hardly science, but that may be the most powerful thing we've heard today. Ladies, get over it. Eat more protein. Oh, my. And yeah, I think not not only will you be less hungry, you you won't need to snack between meals. Forget this little three ounce, like eat. And um, you you may even find that your moods are more stable, especially if if you cut the carbs and sort of replace some of that with protein. Your blood sugar is going to be more stable, your mood. I just, I think that's a huge missing piece for a lot. And women who are, you know, all their lives, they've had weak, you know, soft, brittle nails, and they buy all these special lotions and potions to put on the nails, double your protein intake and see what happens to your nails and hair. Um, Is the protein intake recommendation for women basically the same as it is for men? One gram of protein for every kilogram of body weight? Uh, So... I I don't need to open a can of worms. Well, yeah, I understand that, you know, the official recommendation is more like, uh, you know, point uh, the the RDA, the recommended daily allowance is 0.4 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight. Uh, So, um, you know, that's the official recommendation. I think the one, you know, the one gram per, per pound uh, that so many of us, uh, you know, here in the low carb world, you know, uh, talk about, uh, yeah, I don't see that as being different for women, uh, than, uh, than for men. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it is. I think, um, but, but like oh, you so said, it's the, a, a gram per pound that that's, again, that's what I recommend. That's okay, what many okay. others, uh, recommend. And the official RDA is 0.4 grams per kilo of body weight. It's it's 0.8 grams per kilogram, but but that's still just crazy. But that see that the problem with that is that was nutritionist and I know that's nuts. Yeah, but that was not intended as the ideal or optimal amount. That is the minimum amount to not waste away. And so I think, I think for people, I agree with the one gram per pound, but I want to stress, I agree with Dr. Ted Naiman, who one gram per pound of your desired weight. So let's say you, you weigh 300 pounds, but you want to be 205. Don't eat 300, you know, aim. But I also, this is when I say keto without the crazy or, or just nutrition without the crazy. You don't have to hit that exact number every single day. It's okay to be lower sometimes, higher sometimes. That's a general ballpark. And then the the other thing, your your listeners and viewers probably know this, but in case they don't, because it amazes me how many people don't know this. If we say eat 100 grams of protein a day, that is not 100 grams of a protein food on a food scale. 100 grams of protein is different from 100 grams by weight of chicken or fish or beef. The, the rule of thumb, I don't want to like confuse people. The rule of thumb is each ounce of a protein food like beef or pork or seafood, each ounce contains approximately seven grams of protein. So a three ounce piece of fish or chicken would be about 20, 21 grams general ballpark. So if we say to eat a certain number of grams of protein, you cannot assess that by weighing the food on a scale. It's a different measurement. It's a calculation, though. So, yeah, yeah. An, an ounce equal an ounce of protein since, equals since, seven grams of pro, uh, ish seven yeah. grams of protein. Yeah. 
Okay. You know, I, I think since you and I, you know, like to keep it simple, Amy, you know, the, the general rule is eat more protein and eat less carbs. And you know, <laughs> for the vast majority of people that that's all you need to pay attention to. And you're going to, you're going to end up in a better place. Yes. All right. I want to, I want to say one last thing. I was looking at your website and I saw I'm scrolling down in the blog and it says the stall slayer. And Thank you for for um, uh, illuminating us about what that actually meant, because I thought it was a bathroom serial killer, to be honest. Um, she writes murder fiction. Okay. <laughs> um, Amy, it's been a pleasure. I This has been, for me, as a non-medical professional, this has been just packed with to practical things to know and to, and to be able to, to implement. I have one last question I want to ask you. Is there a celebrity, a nutrition celebrity you'd like to duct tape? D duct tape how? So they, uh, they never you know, say across anything their again? Mouth, or? Oh. Tie them to a chair and beat them? I don't know. Ooh. There's a, it would be hard to pick one. And, you know, I don't want to name names. Um, I think everybody, everybody is coming from a good place. Everybody wants to help. Everybody means well. We just might disagree a lot over the best way to accomplish good health. Um, okay. Well, I gave you a chance yeah. there. All right, I, Phil. Better for me to not name names. <laughs> we'll try and keep our guests mostly out of trouble. <laughs> Uh, well, so Amy, just, uh, tell people a little bit about, um, you know, how you, how you work with people, how they can find you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my, uh, my main website and blog is to it, nutrition.com T U I T nutrition.com. The website's in massive need of overhaul, but I do have private, uh, consultations, but you're better off going to uh, stallslayer.com and clicking on work with me to, for the consultation. So stallslayer.com. And um, I also do, uh, I help, I help um, a company called Adapt Your Life do online courses about keto. And that's at adaptyourlifeacademy.com. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Two It Nutrition. And I, I have a YouTube channel, which I just changed the name. So it goes by my name now. It's Amy Berger, and that's B-E-R-G-E-R. -E and it's Keto Without the Crazy. So all my videos are there. And um, yeah, I do, like I said, I do the consultations, but I also think if you're brand new to this, check out check out the book that I wrote with Dr. Westman called End Your Carb Confusion. That really, that's the book I would want to have if I was brand new to all of this now. The, the simple, straightforward way to do it. Good stuff. All right. Well, for our listeners, as always, we'll make sure that this uh, contact information shows up in the show notes. So you'll just be able to click and get there. Phil, anything you want to wrap before we wrap it up? No, just another uh, another great week, another great conversation. Um, really, uh, you know, want to thank the audience because uh, the show has been growing uh, significantly, and uh, we're just uh, so happy that it's we're getting this information to so many people that need to hear it. Yeah, and and Phil, I want to before we close, I want to reiterate that I appreciate your. I mean, it is so fabulous not only to have more medical doctors who understand this, but, but a, a cardiac surgeon for goodness sake. I mean, that's incredible to have a heart surgeon who says it's okay to eat butter and it's okay to eat red meat, but also that you, like I said, in your book, stay off my operating table, that you, you were very clear that maybe not everyone needs keto as, as much as I love keto and I know how powerful it is. Not everybody needs to go that far. Some people can just sort of clean up their diet. So I, I appreciate you, you know, respecting that different people need different things. Well, I guess we're going to have to put it into the love fest, but yeah, it's been great. Amy, it's a pleasure to meet you. A lot of fun to talk to you. Um, I personally have learned some, some things 
I've gotten some questions answered today that I've had for a long time that I didn't know I had until I started reading about your stuff. So I want to I want to thank you for being here. Well, this is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. You can follow Dr. O on Twitter at iFixHearts. Go to his website, iFixHearts.co. Take a metabolic health quiz just to find out exactly what you may or may not need to do. And you can also reach his website uh, at OvediaHeartHealth.com. Until next time, I'm Jack Heald. Thanks for joining us. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.